Today's show is sponsored by our friends at Action247.com, Tennessee's only sportsbook by Tennesseans for Tennesseans. And yes, football's over. We miss it. Before you know it, it'll be March Madness, NBA and NHL playoffs, hopefully the MLB. But there's a lot going on. There are parlays all week. So make sure to check out Action247.com. Look and see what some of those parlays are. But this Sunday, we're turning left. It's Daytona 500 day. Bet on the race. They'll give you 50% of your stake back if it doesn't hit only at action247.com use code dads 100 today's show is also sponsored by our friends at distilleryproducts.com and if you're a bourbon group a store maybe you're a podcast or a distillery and you want to buy laser etched glassware at wholesale prices make sure to check out distilleryproducts.com they also have awesome swag like mirror and flasks and stirs and all sorts of good stuff we use them for our glasses you should too reach out to me and i'd be happy to get you in touch with carson janey vicky all the good folks storyproducts.com today's show is also sponsored by our friends at orca coors and if you use code dad season at orca coors you will save 20 percent on your order and they just got those collegiate coors in i know because i just got a 40 quart kentucky cooler i'm so pumped about you can get them too they have all sorts of teams ncaa teams they have nfl teams they have mlb teams check them out at orcacoolers.com they have tumblers they have those whiskey barrel tumblers if you use go dad season they'll save up to 20 percent at orcacoolers.com Today's show is sponsored by Action 24-7, Tennessee's only sportsbook by Tennesseans for Tennesseans. And if you want action, you got to get in on the action with our friends at Action 24-7. Make sure when you go to the app or you go to the webpage, look at their promos, look at their specials, see what they have. But you know what's always special? If you use code DADS100, they'll match up to $400 of your first deposit at Action247.com. Use code DADS100. Zeke, what you got for me today? I got you right when you were sipping. I'm I'm on the struggle bus today. It's been a, a a rough 48 hours. You just picked a very 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 old Four Roses, didn't you? I, I helped. I mean, I'm not going to say that I picked it per se on my own, but I was there. I was part of it. Uh, but yeah. privately, you told me your palate was there for a reason. Yes, so they knew what to throw out. But then I voted for what everyone else did, well, or what the majority did, and then that really threw a, a pretty big monkey wrench into everything. So there's one person who was left out? Two out of 13. Oh, man, that's rough. I know. I, I'm glad I wasn't those people for once. That's like Benton on the Buffalo Trace Wolfpack pick where he wanted two, and everybody else in the room said two was the worst barrel. I mean, the walls said number two. He got blinded and said number two. Bad. 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 <laughs> no, you know, I think something went wrong here. I don't know. Let's try it one more time. Oh, no, that wasn't. Sorry, I got it confused. It wasn't. We were still giving him crap at Buffalo Trace. I'm still talking about Jack Daniels, the number two barrel. At this point, Benton, barrel two, emeritus status. It's just what he's going to go for. But since you brought him up, I, I will give him a shout out. He's the, uh, I think, the newest official member of Dad's Drinking Bourbon is he had a little baby born a couple of days ago. So shout out to him and congrats. I'm glad you went right where I wanted you to go for once because that's why I mentioned Benton. We love you, buddy. Congrats on being a dad. Let's start the show. Hello, 
everyone. My name is John Edwards. With me, as always, is Zeke Baker. And together, we make the Dad's Drink of Bourbon. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you for making us part of your day. It's not often we don't have a funny cold open, but we did want to make sure to congratulate our good friend, Benton and also mentioned that Zeke went on a very old Four Roses pick because he won't tell you, but his ego requires that we have to mention good things about him every show. Like one good thing he did. And now I want to mention Zeke is having a very good hair day. Y'all can't see this right now because we're on video and you're listening to us on audio, but the best way I can describe it is a 42-year-old financial advisor, how they have the side part going on so it's like kind of the frat flip it's definitely not a middle part it's definitely a side part and it goes up really high because your forehead's kind of receding a little bit at that point in your life but you have really long bangs on one side so you kind of are like holding on to the frat flip the best way i could describe it is if you said like show me georgia frat boy in the dictionary like and there was a picture next to it it would be the hair that zeke has on his head right now no the the frat is way more of a swoop from the you're side. swooping man you are swooping almost look straight up from my nose this is almost the middle this is very much like David Duchovny in Californication. It's just a little bit longer. Well, our guest is looking up your nose right now, and I think he wants to get off the podcast. It is a very special night, as always, when we have a guest. This man, I think we've had these samples for four months, and we've been trying to schedule this podcast. I appreciate you hanging in with us through the holidays, through everything you had going on, everything we had going on. But Jesse Parker, who is the master blender at Doc Swinson's, this man won a spirits, an international spirits competition at the age of 21. And I'm about to perk Zeke's ears up as soon as he hears me mention this. Zeke with a gin at 21 years old. Zeke is a big gin guy. But Jesse, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Zeke, thanks so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to do some more podcasts. It's new for me. So uh, this is going to be fun. You have a room. We've, we were talking about this before the show. You have a room. There's a barrel pyramid behind you. And I mean, that is a 10 barrel barrel pyramid. It's it's a five, four, three, two, one all the way up. You, you have a great the light just switched. You did something and it got a little bit darker. Well, to be honest with you, uh, this building that we're in, well, this particular room, it's all automated lights. So I have to move. And the where they put my computer screen and my camera blocks the sensor. So it might shut off randomly through this, this podcast. So I'll just do this all of a sudden to try and get it back on. I think what <laughs> you need to do is get some mood lighting behind those barrels. So you could get yeah. like a colored light behind the barrels and then shut the regular lights off. And you could do one of those circle lights, the ring lights. and I've put that ring light. That's the only thing that stays on. It's right here. <laughs> yeah. And then you have the mood lighting behind you and then you just shut the main lights off. And then when I people like- take pictures of you for like the gram, you could have this awesome background. You know, John, I think that would be a great idea. I think I, I'd be able to do the, you know, Luke, I am your father kind of situation here because it would be so like intense. <laughs> <laughs> That's the blue lighting. Like rave ones. That's the blue or red lighting of the Death Star, you know? Got it. I can, I can work on that. We'll work on it tomorrow. I'm assuming looking at all of this stuff here and the research I've done on you, you won your first spirits competition when you were 21. I feel like you're 30 now. Yeah, you, you nailed that one on the head. I am exactly that. Because it said with just nine years of experience, Jesse is now a, you made bro Bible, man. Congrats. But 
it said you're you're now a master blender as one of the founders of Doc Swinson. So I'm like, all right, well, this article came out. I'm assuming he's 30 now. So no, I am 30 now. Uh, I'm still adjusting to the term master. That's what my uh, my uh, marketing people like to tell me I should be. Uh, honestly, I'm 30. What kind of master could I be? <laughs> but I guess I'm doing well. People seem to really like the whiskey and the gin, evidently, when I was 21. So. <laughs> So what got you into the spirits industry at such a young age anyway? Uh, a fascination for, for I guess, chemical engineering and, and, and processes. Um, no, I really like the art and the history behind alcoholic beverages. My parents were into that when I was a little kid, and I just kind of kept running with it. I'll skip the teenage stuff and move right into when I was 21. When I was 21, I it just so happened to be a bunch of craft distilleries who started taking off in the United States. And I was still in university and thought, well, this can't be that hard, right? Let me let me see what I could do here. And there's a, a, an apple orchard distillery opened up down the road from my university. And I showed up and said, hey, I know a little bit about these stills. I figured I could be like an assistant while I was still going to university. They bought these beautiful Vendum stills and nobody to run them. And they just hired me because I was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've, I'm kind of obsessive when it comes to certain things. And I, I found my obsession in spirits. So I've been studying since uh, I was basically a teenager on different techniques that are used primarily in cognac and uh, Irish whiskey blending, Scottish whiskey blending, wine, et cetera. And I just started applying them to distilled spirits more than anything. People trusted me with their equipment and their money, evidently. So it just kind of kind of worked out. At first, it was out of convenience, though. And then they really <laughs> trusted you. Like It was like, we're going to give them the keys, but hopefully it doesn't crash the car. It doesn't blow it up. Yeah, more yeah. like it. Yeah, and, and we, we, we did really well with gin. So I created some recipes when I was pretty young and uh, had some help with some great people that were really into tasting things. I had great uh, vocabulary for it and said, ah, maybe a little tweak here, a little tweak there. But honestly, most of the time, it's just me in the middle of the night playing around with flavors. That's really what I do. So what was it about the gin that... Like, what was the botanical you put in there? What did you actually put in the bucket to to make that best gin? Yeah, well, I think the gin specifically was unique in the fact that it was made, one, the base is entirely made from fruit. It's apple-based, right? So it was all cider-based. You didn't taste it. It wasn't like a, a calvados or anything like that. It was neutral, so I distilled to 190 proof. It gave it a really great mouthfeel in conjunction with, uh, gosh, it's been so many years since I've made it. It was 13 I botanicals and... I realized people really like cinnamon. <laughs> and honestly, it was a blend of two different juniper types. And then cinnamon specifically from one region of the world that actually was more like this really nice, sweet kind of a uh, woody tea-like characteristic to it. So it wasn't overbearing. And people seemed to just really enjoy that. Um, it was easy to drink at a 90 proof, made great cocktails, killer gin and tonic, and evidently uh, international competitions seemed to enjoy it too. That's crazy though, because that's not, I mean, Zeke, I'm going to let you jump in before 30 minutes. And Jesse, I say this because Zeke notoriously sits back and just listens for 30 minutes and lets me do all the heavy lifting. And then 30 minutes in, he comes in with this big, profound question and you go, oh my God, that was so thoughtful. This other guy talked my ear off. But Zeke, you got to admit, that's not a typical gin profile. That sounds super interesting to me. You know, just to clarify, I leave the heavy lifting to you because you go to the gym every day. I, I don't go any day. So, I know we, we could tell by looking at you. Hey, 40, I got to take care of myself. I'm doing calisthenics and working on being fit. I don't need to uh, max gains. I literally think your body is eating itself. I'm doing okay. <laughs> At any rate, um, botanical wise though, what are some of the uh, 
the more exotic, or I guess like further off the spectrum things you've thrown around or, or played with that folks would be like, hold on. It did. I mean, nothing that I probably ended up putting in. It was actually a pretty standard botanical list, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of it came down to the technique that was used to extract the the oils. And that was utilizing maceration and vapor infusion. So it gives you a different mouthfeel depending on how you process those botanicals. I think that's really what what people seem to attach themselves to. That and I, like I said, a little bit more of the, the cinnamon characteristic, which almost didn't come off as cinnamon. Uh, you know, it wasn't like fireball or anything like that. It just made a really nice gin. As far as things off the wall that I've done that I've never really put into to, to, uh, bottling, um, I've distilled, gosh, I don't know, I said it's been a long time. I got out of distilling when I was 25, so <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just into blending, <laughs> which is, is where my heart really lies. Um, I've distilled things as far as Hershey's syrup all the way down to, uh, um, gosh, uh, what, burdock, um, dandelions, uh, a host of different beers that would fall off trucks for my friends who had distributors ships, <laughs> uh, different things like that. You know, most of this was on a lab scale, of course. Uh, almost none of it I would probably ever put into to practice. So that's a great segue, though. You stopped distilling when you were 25 and moved into the blending side of it. I was almost going to ask, like, are you positioned? I know you were a co-founder there, but are you positioned to be in the prime seat in the event that Docs ever starts distilling? But you kind of answered the question yourself. I mean, you're a great person to be in that hybrid role, but your heart is in blending. Why is it in blending more than distilling? Distilling's fun, especially when it comes to, once again, gin. I think distilling is really fun when it comes to gin. When it comes to processing the same mash bills every single day. Honestly, it's kind of like watching paint dry, in my opinion. It gets a little bit boring. To be totally fair, I've worked with whiskeys that were made before I, I even have a license. So the ability to work with distilleries that have proved themselves in the market, that do an excellent job, and are arguably far more educated than me, <laughs> collectively especially, do a really great job. And I get to play from that. So essentially, it's it's like I get a spice cabinet and I get to add all the spices in the end. And that is what excites me, to be honest. But it's not exciting when you're running the still. I mean, now that you know what you know about blending, wouldn't there be an excitement in watching the still, knowing that you're going to get to play with that eventually? Yes, there would. And there is. And I'm not saying we wouldn't do it in the future because there has been conversation of that at some point in time. The supply chain's coming. You got to watch out. You got to prepare. Well, that's the neat thing is I don't just do whiskey. <laughs> so... So tell us a little bit, you founded Docs with some other people. Tell us a little bit about the story of, of how, you know, so I think if we're following you, you stopped distilling when you're 25. What takes you to Doc Swinson's? How did it happen? I, I actually kind of wanted to get out of the industry, to be totally honest with you, and try something different with my life, uh, mostly because I thought distilling was getting to the point where it was a little bit boring. I didn't quite have the pedigree that would get me into somewhere in Kentucky, for example. At least I didn't think I did. In fact, I know I didn't. And I wasn't sure really where I wanted to go with that, but I knew I wanted to get somewhere in blending. Uh, that could have been wine even. That could have been working in breweries. I didn't really know when I was 25. And it just so happens to have, there's somebody that came across the taste room that I was in at the, uh, one day and really liked, I guess, my my answers that I gave him. I, I basically just fed him a line of bullshit and he thought it was funny. After about a year or so, he eventually offered me a job and said, hey, you want to start a company? And I said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and that was actually our parent company, which is Distiller's Way. And what we originally set out to do was primarily produce private label products 
for you know grocery store chains and liquor store chains. So I figured, well, that kind of fits the bill of the things that I really want to get into, which is learn from other people in the industry by working with them and their products, uh, as well as producing my own products from theirs, right? I also really love traveling, and this kind of fit that bill as well. Uh, I do get to go to various distilleries from time to time, whether that's in the country, out of the country, you name it for different projects. Uh, So it satiates all those things that I wanted in my life, to be honest. And when we first set up, we didn't originally go down the path of making whiskeys under our own brand names. We were doing it for other people. And in that period of time, we worked on a number of different projects. And every once in a while, we would come across these little caches of casks. You know, we with some of our extra cash, we'd buy 10, 15, 20, 30 of them, start finishing them in a number of different barrels or blending the different distilleries products together and selling those, which eventually just got a name and it was Doc Swinson's. So it's not the it's not about who Doc Swinson's is or anything like that. It was just a name that we thought really fit what we thought was cool at the time, to be honest, which was kind of a mad scientist-like thing. Eventually it slowly started taking off, especially around the beginning of COVID. We got our hands on some 15-year bourbons and uh, released that before every, basically anybody else did. And it just skyrocketed Doc Swinson's into a, uh, a brand that became a little bit more nationally recognized. And I was... of course, we had to backpedal and say, well, what the hell do we fill the gap with? <laughs> <laughs> and it just so happens I've been working on these projects for four years now almost five years now, all these different finished barrel projects. So we started scaling it up. Well, I was going to say that 15 year, I don't know if you're allowed to say where it was from or if I could say where everybody in the community was talking about where it was from and save you the trouble of the NDA and all that stuff. But I, I remember when y'all first came on the scene and everybody's, you hear about this brand that got 15 year old beam. It was this big thing. Who, who got it? Who, the hell is Doc Swinson's? And I think there are these brands that come out. There's a brand here that's under a distributor that got some barrels from Bardstown, relabeled it under their label, and everybody kind of went crazy. But we haven't seen a follow-up to that. And how great is that that y'all had Nace in the hole after that 15-year whiskey where you could be like, oh, guess what? We have this, and we have this, and we have this. And Jesse's actually been working on stuff, and it just... It proves how awesome it is when you have a plan and you actually have something to go from. It certainly helps. Let me tell you that. And most of it was, okay, what do we back this with? Like you said, how do we make an impact in our market, right? In the, in, the, in the industry. And we figured since we're not the distiller in the first place, that our best bet was to make good finished whiskeys, like really good finished whiskeys. We think there's a handful of, I, I believe there's a handful of us out there that do an excellent job at it which is wonderful. There's also a a whole bunch, as said before, that kind of just check the box. They have to do it. We don't believe we're one of them at all. It takes a lot of energy behind it. So to follow up after a 15-year bourbon with something that is, you know, a third of its age and still be be known has been kind of uh, uh, an interesting learning curve, let me tell (laughs) you. But so far, it's working. And that 15-year, once you're out of the 15-year, you're kind of back into the rotation of, you might have a 15-year sometime if if some a broker comes to you and says, hey, hey, I got something over here. You want it? But the other thing is you're going those traditional routes now. You're going to Indiana. You're going to Owensboro. You're, I don't know if you're good. See, it looks cool when it's like that, though. It's I okay. can leave it this way. This is fine. You're fine. Don't feel like you need to turn on the lights for us. It's all you got that ring light. 
but you know, you're looking at, you know, your Columbus, Ohio's, your Indiana, your Owensboro, Kentucky's, your Columbia, Tennessee's, you know, you're, you're searching out there, Bardstown, you're trying to find whiskey. Like how did that kind of go to get those four year old barrels? Cause everybody knows once you go out to those other places, that's kind of the years you're looking at right now. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely the case. And at the time it was, uh, we already had a pretty good relationship established with MGP in the first place. And I've always really enjoyed MGP juice. Uh, their mash bills were originally set up to taste more familiar, like a, a couple other mash bills out of Kentucky that I really appreciated, especially growing up, you know, in my, in my early twenties before I really got into whiskeys, I just really like working with MGP products. Uh, they could be a little bit fickle when it comes to finishing casts. So you better know what you're doing. <laughs> They're not quite as accepting as uh, the, a lot of the Tennessee bourbon I've worked with, for example. But that's that challenge is, I think, exciting. So as far as the age go, well, the funny thing is, I guess we got in right at the right time to be able to procure enough product for the next few years for our line of Doc Swinsons. Because there's no bourbon on the market right now. <laughs> <laughs> there's almost no bourbon on the market right now in bulk. I can tell you that. it's It's been an interesting shuffle for the last six months. We're glad you got some, though. Yeah. It's funny because a lot of people that we talk to that are sourcing barrels from these places, they're almost saying that the cooperage that you're getting it from is more important than actually the fact that you have a certain source. Are you finding that to be the case as you're going through barrels that first barrel before you finish it, does it really matter to you all where you're getting that from because you know you're going to finish it anyway? You mean as far as the cooperages go or yeah. just where we source it? I mean, both, I guess. Uh, whether we source it from a different distillery than MGP or not, it all comes into consideration. For example, usually I, I mix mash bills for a reason. I can finally control how I, I, I want my flavor profiles and what I think will pop out the best for whichever finishing casts I'm going to work with. And that just, it just is a really a concept of time and paying attention as far as the cooperages themselves. Yeah. I get a whole list of cooperages for all, from all the barrels that I want to purchase. And I usually just bleed them together, to be honest, so that there's not as much of a, a difference. So one batch won't be, you know, all X cooperage. Another one will be all another cooperage because there is a, absolutely a flavor difference. That is totally the case. And oftentimes, depending on how long it's been seasoned um, is a big part or what, which, which, you know, American Oak forest it came from. You could find a huge difference between them, but also the mash bill and the the yeast strain seems to make the most flavor profile in my, in my opinion. Oh, and I don't think we're doubting that. I think there's this new science, right? That basically is just, or maybe it's the hip new thing that people are looking at in where are you actually getting the cooperage from and, and how's that wood reacting different than it might, you know, from another place. Sure. Provenance is a big thing. I mean, we talk about, you know, uh, what uh, terroir and wine, right? It absolutely makes a difference. And the provenance of the oak, uh, the grain, everything can make a difference to the product. That's what makes it neat. Uh, I think one of the neat things about us being relatively small as a company goes and I do taste every single batch and blend every single every single batch together with a very small team of people. There's myself, my right-hand guy, uh, and then I've got basically three other employees that uh, help move barrels around. That's it. So our hands are very much in the product, so we get to taste it along the whole way. And if we don't like it, we genuinely do not release it. It goes into something else, hopefully, <laughs> or it sits in a tank for a while until I figure out what to do with it. Eventually, when you have that big, big small batch product, maybe you, you drop the price down on it a little bit, but it's just one big old small batch. That's where it ends up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, big old small batch. Yeah, we put all those tag words on our bottle. We thought it was uh, actually a funny marketing joke to start with. And some people don't get it, but we get a kick out of it. Um, 
I'm glad you appreciate the joke there. I think with yeah. uh, multiple random finishes that are, were just uh, kind of passed over, you might should go with potluck instead of small batch. <laughs> I prefer I potpourri. Like potpourri. We call that the- wherever pots distilled is and put, you know, Potluck. Potluck. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, we, we, we used to joke and just call it the casserole dish. I mean, that's what we used to call it is we just throw it all together. Like, oh, that's gnarly. What do you, what do you do with that? One of the beautiful things about our company is we're, we're a house of brands. So uh, Doc Swinson's is like our love. It's our baby. It's our child. But we also have the ability to make more brands. So I guess if something was really bad, we'd probably just put it under a different label, to be honest, and sell it for nothing. No, I'm just kidding. We've never actually done that. I'm yeah. pretty attentive of my barrels. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. There's always a chance. <laughs> we have a backup. And that's okay. We're going to put this down under a different brand. And it'll be real cheap there. <laughs> so on the um, you know the provenance of the, the cooperages and the barrels you get, especially if you're sourcing them from brokers and not directly from the distiller, how easy or hard is it to really obtain that knowledge and do they always have that or can they even provide it? To be honest with you, all the Doc Swinson's products now, except for maybe some like limited releases, for example, like the 15 year, we actually just directly source it. So we have all that information. So everything that we're currently releasing, I have all the information down to the barrel char, the head toast, everything, which cooperage produced it, how old it is, et cetera. As we get stuff from brokers, correct. Sometimes we get answers, sometimes we don't. Ultimately, the goal of the product is what we put in the bottle is good or hopefully great. That's really the goal. So we stand by that one. So even if it's from several different cooperages, we'll generally find a home for it. And we'll also just reject product if we don't want it. You know, for example, if some if we're running low on whiskey for all of our products, we'll just not make as much whiskey. That's what we're going to do. So we, we don't want to muddy it up too much. We think that's a, that's a brand killer, especially one that's so closely attached, you know, it's attached to our names. And this is a big deal. Gotcha. No, and I, I'm sure some folks have a, a grasp of dealing with brokers and, and what that can or can't entail and some can't. So I don't want to burn too much time on it, but I could easily see that being a nuance of, well, where did this come from? What toast jar was it? Um, okay, you've you told me the juice and maybe the mash bill, and I'm just supposed to wing it here. All right. There's a lot of that, especially when we first started this company and we first started seeking out bourbons and we were buying smaller lots. We couldn't really directly source it. It was hard and you were guessing some of the time. So you start just taking notes. Everything we bought, I just took notes on. Okay, what barrel physically, what char is it? You know, sometimes it'll, more often than not, they'll have a stamp on the barrel from the manufacturer, the cooperage, which is nice. So you could kind of start taking notes and then look them up and see what they're doing. But now it's, it's gotten a lot easier. I've got a few brokers that I like working with that usually give me all the information I actually want, <laughs> which is making my life so much easier. Let me tell you. Wow. Zeke took over for a little bit, but I think we need to pump the brakes. Jesse, you, you sent us two things here. The first thing I will, I will introduce it and then I'll let you talk about it. This is straight bourbon whiskey finished in cherry and cognac casks. It is bottled in small batches. Does say it on there. It is also says limited edition. I think <laughs> it says alter ego, triple cask, 47.9% ABV, 95.8 proof. I think it was approved by you. That's a hell of a signature you got there. There's four of us that signed the signed the bottle. We used to actually handwrite all these labels when we used to do things in small quantities, and we we're like, "This is this is for the birds, man. This is absolutely insane." So triple cask. So you're not only toasting it, you're toasting it again. It is a double toasted. <laughs> 
Uh, sort of. A double toasted uh, yeah, so equals the, a triple cask. I don't know. Like a, at you, least, can't, right? you can't triple stamp a double stamp. This is almost as, as good as a conversation as what five times distilled vodka actually means. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey, you know, they finally changed some of those rulings on those statements. That was actually really great with the feds. <laughs> I really enjoy like all those little loopholes and, and what people do to put stuff on the bottle. But explain to us what you mean by triple cask, because not yeah. everybody is uh, where we are. So there's a couple, it actually covers several different ways that I could describe this product. Um, But the main way is it goes into three separate finishing casks. That's why. So we start with one set of barrels, which are new American oak casks, right? Where we take uh, two different mash bills from MGP. They're all aged a minimum of five years. And we blend those two together, which equals our straight bourbon whiskey, which is called Blender's Cut, actually, which is right here above my shoulder. And... We take that product and then subject it to whichever finishing cast that go into this. In this case, it's it's Cognac, Oloroso Sherry, and Pedro Jimenez Sherry, which all have a significantly different contribution to the end product, of course. Once those go through their curing process, their finishing process, um, we have to make a batch of it. I'll go through and taste every single one of those barrels. I kid you not. It takes me like a week and a half to make a new batch, at least. And I'll make a bench sample and we'll create the next blend of triple cask. And then, of course, we blend all those together and they go into yet one more form of aging, um, which I call the, the marrying process. All three of those casks will get blended together in an ex-cognac fooder. So I don't know if you all know what a fooder is. But, John. Uh, what's that? John's a fooder. <laughs> Big barrel? <laughs> <laughs> well. We call that large format, sir. <laughs> still checking all the boxes for me right now yeah just keep going How many hey, days you, you two are going to be best friends after this i mean you both got hair you both think i'm a fooder i mean there we go i like the like that's the that's our requirements here <laughs> to be fair i actually am an observer too usually i just sit back and listen forever and i'll just drop some wisdom and i'm like okay <laughs> yeah zeke i'll give you his email after the show so anyway so that's one way to look at it is it's the three Three different finishing casts that get used in this process. The other way, of course, is once again, starting with our, 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 our new American white oak, going into finishing casts, and then finishing or marrying in ex-cognac fooders, the whole batch. So that's another reason why we call it triple cast. So it's like the trifecta of different ways to look at this here. We thought this would be kind of a fun project because a lot of people are just doing single cask finishes. Not a lot of people are doing blended cask finishes. Now there's a couple of them out there. You know, we could, I'm sure, you know, Magnus, uh, Barrel, a few others. And ours, for the record, does not taste anything like Joseph A. Magnus's version. I know a lot of people attribute it to something very similar because it's made or it's finished in the same kinds of casks but it doesn't honestly taste anything like it. The inspiration, the funny thing about each one of the products that we release is I apply a different set of process methods that I learned about when I was younger from a different part of the industry. So the triple cast specifically, I learned quite a lot about scotch blending and Irish whiskey blending. And when I was really young, I fell in love with Irish whiskey. I mean, who who didn't? I guess it's easy to drink. It's nice. It's got a great flavor profile. And I fell in love with Red Breast. It was like the first whiskey that got me into whiskeys. Their finished cast series absolutely just stole my heart. And I applied some methods that were used, not necessarily just by them, but anybody making Irish whiskey or or Scotch whiskey to this specific product. So that was kind of my goal, was to apply these methods that are used in this part of the industry 
to our product, American bourbons, which I don't think you see a lot of. I meant to ask you about that. And I know we're talking about your stuff, but you were talking about the blending that you have done with Irish whiskey and and scotch. And what are the differences in blending American whiskey, Irish whiskey, scotch? Like, what are you looking for differently between the three of them? That's kind of an interesting question. That could be like a two hour long segment. Uh, It probably could be right. And (laughs) and I completely understand that. Yeah, I I think in a nutshell, um, I was looking to, how do I say this? There's a lot of people out there that don't like bourbon whiskeys. And that might be like, really sad to say on the show or whatnot. I know it's a growing category, but there's a lot of people out there that would always say, all I like is scotch. I think bourbon's too hot. Bourbon's too this. And I think there's a really interesting cross there because one, I'm an American. I live here. I grew up here. I love bourbons. I like all whiskeys, really. I haven't found one I don't like. I, I thought it would be interesting to try and bridge that gap a little bit more. So people who are really interested in scotch might really enjoy this product, even though it's an American bourbon, for example, while still not losing what is integral to the product, which is bourbon. So the goal for Doc Swinson's products, my products, are to still maintain that bourbon aspect while employing these different methods found in the industry to it so that it kind of gets new people into, into brown spirits, in particular American whiskeys that otherwise might not normally drink them. So is that what, I guess, probably led or maybe not where you, or I guess, originally got the idea to use the Oloroso and PX Sherry Cask? Because I feel like those are definitely way more prominent there than anything we see here on, you know, this side of the pond. A hundred percent. That's exactly where it came from, really, is is how do those flavors uh, impact on, you know, a, a scotch whiskey? And to be honest with you, they do such a great job of it. Half the time, it's never even put on the label and you wouldn't even know, right? It's used to, and you wouldn't say that, that scotch whiskey is exactly like Pedro Jimenez. You might as well go buy a bottle of Pedro Jimenez. It's it's there to influence the flavor more subtly, right? It layers in fruity characteristics or it layers in nuts or something like that. And that's how I wanted it to impact the bourbon. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be a flavor bomb where you try it and you're like, oh, that's exactly Pedro Jimenez or that's exactly Oloroso. The goal is to say this is bourbon, but wow, those are some unique flavors that are added to it, or it enhances the mouthfeel, for example, or the body. Um, all those different characteristics go into, into the thought process behind here. So I, I picked each one of those casts based upon how I think they would influence the bourbon itself. And most of the time, it's actually mouthfeel, body, uh, sweetness, things like that, or what's complimentary, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. I mean, we've always thought that anything that's finished should be a compliment auxiliary you know second or tertiary components yeah to maintain the identity of your original product again it's like you know you make a sundae or something yep you got the base and you got those little things you, you know you put on here and there and they help it but without the base you're nothing you know absolutely I, that's that's it after all it the first thing it says in there is straight bourbon whiskey uh, we <laughs> felt like it was important to maintain that aspect and i think over the years of playing around with finishing casts I, I tried a lot of other you know products on the market I, although many of them are very good and i would i would use them in a lot of situations i i just wanted to go a direction that wasn't over finished I want to go with something that that once again still maintained a lot of the characteristics of the bourbon itself. I love that. That's the first thing I got when I took a sip here. Just mm-hmm. I'm expecting, especially with those Oloroso casks, other times I've had those finishes, I really see them come out. And it's really funny, the finish on the finish, and it really, <laughs> it really pops up 
right in the back of your palate. I always get a big punch of that Oloroso. I'm just so amazed. It's got a little bit of fruit to it. Obviously, it would with the finishes here, but it's very subtle, and I still taste the bourbon enough to the fact that I could get corn on the finish too and in other oloroso or other sherries cognacs you can still kind of get some of that stuff coming through but yeah with those fruity wines i've never got a corn on the finish as well with that fruit that's good that means i'm doing all right right i 100 percent. i see but the people could taste what i'm trying to explain with my words here right <laughs> zeke i don't know if if uh you got the same thing but i i definitely saw there was a lot of complexity in this for a finished product and I, I loved the fact that this is where we talk about you like you're not here i love the fact Wait. that uh there really was a whole lot of bourbon and there was a lot of meat there but it was a complex pour and I feel just like you two were talking about before I rudely jumped in. I really feel like the finishes complemented what was already there instead of distracting and detracting. It's definitely a unique back and forth. I mean, the first thing I pick up is the sherry, and that's probably me because, I mean, you know, we've had plenty of these things over the years, and I rarely drink any type of wine. I certainly don't get into sherry by any means, but cognac, generally sweet, and I'm a sweets kid. If somebody puts out cake or cupcakes or whatever, I'm eating the icing. I'm not touching the rest. I'll do it for like three or four of them, but that's what I'm going to do because that's what I want. So admitting that and seeing Sherry and Cognac in my I head. still just think that that goes back to your commitment issues. Like you could commit to taking the top off the cake, but you can't commit to actually eating the whole cake. Like at some point oh. in your life, you're going to have to deal with this. I'm committed to the sugar. Just not once you put it in the oven and it bakes and like rounds and swells. So ladies, I know I keep trying to do this Zeke Baker dating game podcast and I really just think uh, we have a hard time because Zeke can commit to only the parts that he wants to commit to. He doesn't have the fortitude to actually take the whole bite of the piece of cake. I got two kids. I've done enough. Sometimes you can't just take what you want. Sometimes you need to be there for the other half of the cake. Sometimes you touch the stove and it's hot, son, and you don't touch it again. <laughs> any rate, back to my original point, between <laughs> sherry and cognac, I was immediately intrigued as far as right, which one of these is going to come across the strongest for me and, and you know, obviously they're pique my interest completely or say, ah, I read this but got this. You know, that's how the brain works. I definitely picked up the sherry on the front and then towards the back more, I thought the cognac seemed to resonate more. Again, personally, I would almost just go for straight cognac finish. That's just me. I'm not going to lie to you, but at the same time. I'm going to be marketing here for a second. You can't see it with this halo, but that's that's this one. <laughs> so so there is a, a, a solely cognac finish out there then. Okay. Yeah, it's just limited, very limited. Yeah, sorry, folks. Obviously, they can't you know see the screen, but. Apparently that exists as well. That's the one we get sent after we do the first podcast where Jesse like that goes and tells the PR people like, hey, they're okay. Get, get them a little <laughs> bit of pour in this one too. I never know what they actually send anybody to be honest. So that's why I'm like, hey, what are we tasting real quick? Because <laughs> it could be a whole lineup. It might be two products. I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, but I, I agree with you, Zeke, there though. And I think it's the, the cognac that really comes through on the back part because cognac for me is a finished 
cast that that lets other things play in the sandbox with it and i think that's the really cool thing about it where i feel like wine is almost like a big bully and doesn't like other flavors cognac's cool cognac's sitting there in its leather jacket it's got its beret on you come sit here and have a baguette i couldn't agree with you more actually (laughs) in fact wine finishes are the ones i'm always the most nervous about and not, not fortified wine actually i love working with all of those but just wine like a Cabernet or something is always makes me nervous because it is a total bully and it doesn't play well with uh, our whiskeys half the time. So you got to be really, really agile and careful about that. I'm always glad too for these type of shows. Just I know if I get more than inkling of whatever the wine component is, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to move on to the next thing now. I'm, I'm, I'm probably good here. It's just not my jam. But again, we always try to be transparent. And I, I think plenty of folks have heard enough shows where it's like, yeah, they tried this. We know it's not going to be his thing, but if he doesn't just say nothing, it, it's probably good. It's just not his jam. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is completely fair. <laughs> like, you know, I think with this, I could see myself getting a bottle of this cognac and, and sherry triple cask. I really think it's unique. I love things that are unique and not everybody is doing so i always gravitate towards that just because even when you have friends over and you're gonna blind them throwing something like this in there and teaching them that there's three different casts that were used to finish this and all that other good stuff i i like this pour i probably wouldn't reach for it every day because it would probably be one of those ones like you gotta be in the mood for those certain flavors i think it would be a weekend it's a weekend pour for me one thing, too, and we're usually pretty better about thinking about this, but did you tinker with this at various proofs and, you know, kind of dial it in or was it just kind of arbitrarily done? No. So no, that's actually a really great question. Everything we do here, we try and find a proof point that we think works best for it, um, with the exception of our single barrels. Those just kind of go out as cast strength. For this specific product and also the other one that you all have, which is the, the Solera Method Rye, what I'll do is I'll sit down and try and find the most, uh, I think, uh, expressive proof that we can for it that's also still kind of inviting because not everybody wants 115 proof i know that some people love that and that's great and we have that as well but we think that the uh, finishing casts actually tend to do better at a little bit lower proof uh, more often than not and they can also get other people to to try them that normally would think it's you know too hot at 115 which which it can be it could be you know um, intense for a lot of people in order to make this product actually what i would do is is i would just get these you know i would make the, the master blend and I would basically make a small sample of it at proof increments. I have a general idea. I know that I usually don't want to go below, you know, 94 proof, for example. Uh, usually, I, I don't think we release anything under 94 proof anymore. We did for a little while and we, we, we stopped. Not because it was bad. It was just we got new juice, <laughs> a different product. And <laughs> uh, so typically, finishing cast, we like between 94 and 100 in, you know, 105, 107 proof tends to be really nice a lot of the times especially when it comes to this complex of a blend. So what we'll do is we'll sit down. There's four of us. We'll sit down and we taste them over and over and over again. We eventually, we do this blind. We don't talk to each other about it. And we pick the ones that we think we like the most. And then we'll go back and taste them again. And again, eventually we narrow it down to the decimal point. In this case, 95.8, we felt was the the best representation of the product as a whole. So it, it does go through that process. All, basically, all of our products really do. It just depends on what we're kind of trying to market to and, and who we're trying to hit as far as, you know, flavor profile and, and, and you know, making sure people still get high-proof stuff too. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it comes and goes. And like I said, some people will arbitrarily go straight on a number and some don't. Yeah, we noticed that. <laughs> I mean, I think we've all seen it and been there. And like the final resolution most of us will come to is you eventually get familiar enough with certain products where, all right, literally, I know if it's not a certain proof, it's just probably not going to be what I want. Yeah. But I'm not saying I can apply that across the board because depending on what it is, the age, maybe what it's you know, finished or, you know, married with, so to speak, it's completely different game changers. But yeah, that, I think that's kind of the progression we just all go through over time. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, like I said, we're, we're mostly just trying to, to, to make good whiskey here. <laughs> so, so, um, some, some of them bode a little bit better at a lower proof and some at a much higher proof. I think some of it also comes down to how you blend it and how you proof it too. Uh, I know most of the time you just take barrels, you dump them in a batch and you add water to it and you put it in a bottle. We do that for some of them, but most of our products, that's not how I actually go through my proofing process. Uh, I utilize time, low, small quantities in, in the addition process over a long period of time. And that also helps uh, solidify some better flavor profiles. So the idea is you're not just diluting it at the end and putting it in a bottle. The funny thing is Zeke always kind of knows because I, I get a little more heated about it than he would. But I always hate when there's exact integer number proofs on limited edition releases. I'm like, you just farmed it in. It doesn't need to be 92 proof. Maybe 92.3 proof is the better proof. But like you just farmed it in. If it's just 92, you were like, this ish is okay. You know, like at some point you just kind of said, we're picking a proof and walking away. And maybe it's just something in my head that's wrong, but I kind of feel like when you have it at like the point eight, I'm like, you know, they put a lot of thought into this. They tasted it at different decimal points to make sure it was exactly where it needed to be. I've, I've split it into fractions of decimals even, which is just getting nitpicky, to be honest with you, because in the end, it's, they're different batches, so they all taste a little different. And then when you have to order labels months ahead, sometimes you kind of got to stick with the proof point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest. So the, the initial amount of energy that goes into it is very high, but uh, you know you got to make the accountants and the logistics guys a little bit happy as well. Don't think I'm lazy here, please. <laughs> Well, that if you go back to, you know, handwriting the labels, but who wants to do that shit, right? It, I, did, I did it for eight years. <laughs> I'm done. We had Denny and Jane on from Maker's Mark, and they were telling a story about the last uh, cast strength release of Maker's they had. Well, it, at the time, I mean, I'm sure they've had another one since. They realized there was no decimal point in the, the ABV. And I bet they were happy. They had to go back through every single bottle and take a red Sharpie and just put a decimal point there on every single one of them. Oh, ouch. Okay, I see what happened. Yep, that's brutal. <laughs> that's totally brutal. I, I don't know if it, not that anybody could see our labels, but it was originally inspired by an old prescription label from, you know, the, the Prohibition. Uh, it's very much that style. So back in the day, we have, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, six spots we'd have to fill out on each label. And there's several characters in each spot. So it just became, I mean, it'd take you about a minute to fill out each label. And we had thousands of these across different SKUs that we would produce. <laughs> it just, it became full-time jobs for all of us. We'd take them home at night and like binge watch something on Netflix and just cruise <laughs> on labels. We still do that for a lot of our, our small releases though. So I still have my handwriting on them or, or usually a his name's Keith, so <laughs> usually it's Keith. <laughs> it is funny, those tedious things, though. I don't think folks realize about, like, you know, the growing pains of yeah. a smaller brand. Like, what do you want us to do? Pay somebody $15 an hour and write something down? Like, hell no, we got a bottom line. 
that's a big part. And a big part of our, our brand is trying to, as much as sometimes it does cost a bit for our bottles, absolutely, is still try and give you something out of, it's, it's great whiskey for a fair price. I mean, that, sorry, that sounds marketing, but that's also part of our, our, our belief here. Because in the end, we, we want to be able to afford it too. <laughs> now, there's a difference between, you know, what you really believe in marketing, right? Like yeah. marketing is always like Doc Swinson was a man in the old West who used to hang out with Doc Holiday and, you know, drink whiskey and play poker together. That would be marketing jargon, but your know, real talk is, is kind of where you're at. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. We, we, we think we're pretty real people. Um, it's kind of funny, actually. Doc Swinson's is a real person or was a real person. It just wasn't the highlight of our brand. We just thought it worked really well with the label. And it is kind of a, he's a, a person of, of historic value to our area, but it wasn't our, wasn't the point. He was, a, he was kind of a crazy cool person. So I'm sure you could Google it if you really wanted to and find it. <laughs> I mean, there could be something that eventually comes out that's like the legend of Doc Swinson and each bottle tells another story of like why he's badass. Like you could make the narrative for him. But at the same time, I mean, there, there's kind of like, what was it? Steven Singer, not giving a free plug or a free like, but it was just the I hate Steven Singer, the billboards. And then you're like, who the hell is Steven Singer? And then you realize he's a jeweler and you were kind of disappointed. But like <laughs> in, in the beginning, it's like, man, who is that? steven singer i gotta figure out who he is it's almost like the fact that you haven't gone gushing about who doc swinton is i want to know who he is now i think the uh i don't know the elusivity is kind of nice <laughs> there's actually a lot of little easter eggs on our bottle labels and stuff too that nobody knows anything about them in fact some of the people in our own company don't because uh yours truly designs it all so <laughs> <laughs> Now let's go over to this rye. So this is a, a rye finish in a rum cask. I love it. It's really sweet. I'm not just diving in off the back and saying that. Whoa. From the guy that doesn't like the 95 rye too much, huh? <laughs> I don't like the 95 rye too much, but I I do gravitate towards a sweet whiskey that you can. It's easy to drink is all I'm saying. It, it's very much an easy drinker. Consistency is his middle name. Yes. <laughs> easy drinker <laughs> i'm gonna warn you 95 five mm, it's probably not gonna be my favorite thing yeah you know i'm about three in on this damn no but this does not taste like 95 five the rum really comes out in this one if you were to ask me what i'm tasting more of if i'm tasting 95 five or i'm tasting rum so yes i am consistent because that rum dilutes the mint and the wintergreen that you really get in the 95 five i feel like this is sweet more than minty i mean i would definitely agree it doesn't taste like the 95 really almost at all uh, in fact it is a blend of two of mgp's mash bill rise it's their 51 and their 95 so you get a lot more of those corn characteristics on there which is really nice it still is heavier kentucky on, on rye the- i told you it's the kentucky you blend those two together it's no longer 95.5 sorry okay. i cut you off jesse keep no going. no that's great that's great i love this band and this is funny i i, I know everybody's so usually in love with mgp right <laughs> he was so expecting to get heckled like jesse came on beforehand he's like I, I got heckled by a bourbon group once and it's really zeke and i heckle each other more than we heckle anybody else like and i'm surprised we don't have reviews at this point where it's like can you please stop interrupting the guest to give each other shit please i think it's great uh it loosens things up let me tell you it's i enjoy it and uh to be honest with you most of the time i just get interrupted for like a sales pitch 
from our podcast. I'm like, great guys. And I, I don't mind interruptions, but uh, if you're all of a sudden going to cut me off in the middle of the question, you just asked me and then go right into like, buy this, buy that, buy t-shirts out. I'm like, great. We do all the ads before, and then we just want the conversation to be uninterrupted. We want to, to sit here and actually let it go and have it be friends sitting around the table drinking whiskey. No, that's great. I enjoy it. Let me tell you. I mean, that's how I'm used to drinking whiskey. So this makes it a lot easier for me. So thank you. You're welcome. I interrupted you. Do you remember where you were? Uh, uh, no, not really. But that's okay. That doesn't really matter. Two mash bills of MGP. Two mash bills from MGP. And I always felt I fell in love with the idea of uh, making a Solera, like a traditional style Solera, utilizing small barrels. That's literally the reason why I have this here is this is how big my original Solera was when I first started. And now it takes up a warehouse, which is through this door here. There's hundreds of barrels in it now that make up the Solera for this product. And it's six barrels high, for example, now. The neat thing is we actually make our own rum blend that goes into our ex bourbon casks. So the, the triple cask one we just tried, all those bourbon casks or a good chunk of them uh, get this rum blend that we make in-house only for this product. And it's, it's a blend of four different nationalities, rums, that's also aged in several types of casks, seven, in fact, at right now, seven different types of casks. They all get blended together. Uh, and there are a variety of ages from, gosh, my youngest right now is two years all the way up to nine years old, these rums are. And I've been aging a good chunk of them for over six years myself now. They get put into the bourbon cask for a period of time, and then that gets dumped out. And then we add the rye whiskey into those. And then those end up getting put into the Solera system. So, and then each layer, of course, it just continually ages. And I don't know if you all know what a Solera is, I assume. And again, that would be a reason why this wouldn't be 95.5, because as yep. you're putting the other stuff in, you don't even know if the ratio is 50 to 50 whenever, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the Solera barrel. You dump it in and you just kind of let it happen. The beauty, yeah. So the two blend, the two mash bill blends is, it's it's actually, I can just tell you, it's, it's roughly 75% percent 95.5 and 25 percent 51 percent right from mgp and then of course going into our unique rum blend uh, once again the rum is not blended with the whiskey it just goes into the cast that held the rum and they're also heavily soaked with bourbon flavor still to be totally honest with you so you get some more of those bourbony characteristics on it which is nice in the initial portion of the solera and as it works its way down, of course, it just it just get, gets age, which is really quite nice. So I think we're averaging almost six, six and a half years now on this rye in the Solera sense. So only as young as I think the youngest rye in it now would be about just over five years. So we're getting there. That's awesome. Yeah. Zeke, what I mean, do you that, think about this one? First sip, it hit a lot harder as a rye profile. Mm -hmm. And then each you know subsequent nip of this, at least in my mind, I'm assuming that rum and tackiness and all the sugars are just sticking and staying on the tongue because every time I'm like hold on this isn't what i got before and then it progresses a little more and all right yeah this isn't what i got the last time much less before like I say in my own mind that's kind of what i'm equating to is that rum aspect is just sitting heavier and heavier and coating the tongue and making everything get sweeter as it goes forward. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree. And, and the idea was, I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, is it kind of like Angel's Envy? Y'all could tell me what you think about that. It's not at all the same. It's a completely different ballpark. I wasn't trying to focus on those heavy baking spices, to be honest, when I was blending the rum, but more the, the fruity and, and sweet sugarcane flavors uh, that we would get. So a lot of that's contributed from uh, like the Venice, we have Venezuelan rum in there, Jamaican rum, uh, Crucian and uh, Trinidad as well. 
all blended into that. And those typically have a lot more of those like really nice fruity characteristics more than the, the heavier baking spice or molasses characteristics. Yeah, it definitely doesn't kick up, you know, in that aspect. And I think if it did, that would almost work against itself, especially with a 95.5 type rye, as far as just like on the mid of your tongue, just prickly and popping up. And all right, yeah, that, that, that kind of singes a little more than I would care for. Definitely. What's the price point? I know this is not what a blender necessarily has to think of, but as a founder, you do have to think this way. What's kind of the range-ish that people would pay for the products? The triple cask is like $65, $70, somewhere in there, depending on what state you're in. The Solera Method rye, the one we're tasting now, is $55, $60, somewhere in there, typically. I think um, that's awesome. That That's definitely in a range that they're limited edition things. It's not like you're mass producing a whole lot of them. You might be here soon if, if people like them enough. But, you know, as you're doing it in small batches and things are a little bit different, anytime you have a limited release that, I mean, it's not even close to being at three bills right now. Like, so hats off to you for putting out something that is approachable and affordable. Yeah, thank you. Like I said, that was a big part of it, especially with these two products. And our straight bourbon is also like $55 or $60 as well. It was to allow people to try these unique, cool products as well and be able to actually afford them. Uh, whether they're a daily drinker or not, doesn't really matter. You know, if you're going to pick this one up, just get it in the hands of people and say, hey, look, we do a good job. So the random tidbits I got to throw out or try to before uh, we make this run for too long. I know you mentioned way early on you had some favorite other finished products. What, what would those be off the top of your head? Just to know like where you're drinking when you're not uh, on the company juice. <laughs> <laughs> not on the company. Well, it's always the company juice. No, just kidding. Um, I, I don't know. I like, I honestly like trying uh, basically anything that comes my way. If I happen to walk into it, I actually am really thankful I don't live near a Total Wine and More because I would spend all of my money there. As far as brands and whatnot go, honestly, don't pick up that many people's finished products, to be totally fair. <laughs> I'm interested in trying them. And it's funny, I, I, I'll, I'll drink, you know, I'll buy a bottle and I'll have like two sips out. I'm like, okay, I understand what they did. And I'll move on to the next thing. What I'm actually usually picking up is straight bourbons, to be totally honest, because I'm so fascinated by all the different bases I could potentially use in the future. So that's usually why I buy them. I'll say, okay, you know, this is, you know, whatever, this is Heaven Hill, this is Barton, this is who's, you know, whomever. And see what they are working with for their, you know, each individual one of their brands. And then on top of it, people who do what we do, blending, right? You go and buy, I mean, I love searching out and finding, you know, products from Barrel, for for example. I think they do an exceptional job. Bardstown, if you can find their hand on any of the Discovery series, those are exceptional products. And honestly, they're they're total inspirations to to me. I mean, we're a a teeny fraction of the the size here, and I get to learn a lot from them. uh, And the the, arguably the probably the pedigrees that they have to some degree. (laughs) (laughs) So when I taste some of their blends, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. That totally makes sense. I see why they added these three different bourbons together. It gives you this profile, you know. So I could kind of do my research there. I mean, in the end, we. I, I do get to play with some of the similar juices as they do from time to time, if I'm lucky to find it. Probably on a, a smaller scale, which uh, coincidentally enough, one of the things I had jotted down was, and I know we also talked about early on with getting juice itself now is not easy by any means. Uh, do you guys have any contract distilling lined up? Then you, you 
can or cannot tell us where. I'm not that worried, but viability wise, you know, it's, it's something I think we all kind of think or worry about these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had some great conversations in the last few months with a few few groups here. Um, but uh, like I said, MGP tends to really take care of their their clients, so I got to give total respect to them. Yes, the idea is to to continue to buy younger whiskeys and also new fill as well, so that we can keep Doc Swinson's alive and running, uh, especially the products that we're currently producing, kind of keep them as a more consistent flavor profile while also still releasing a whole host of exploratory casts. I got nine more SKUs probably coming out this year of, of funky blends, which I'm excited about. I'd like to start muddling with some, some more Kentucky whiskey again. I had the opportunity years ago and I loved that and I haven't had it for a while. So uh, one of these days, I'll uh, maybe when the price goes down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> all I know is the, the the bulk market has skyrocketed, and I I don't know who owns all this juice, but hey, if you if you're listening to this, uh, give me a call, Doc Swinsons. <laughs> I'd love to buy some. <laughs> well, at least in theory, you know, once the all these contract distillers keep producing and going up and they're they're producing for others, but they're also just mass making it. We've talked about it some. I mean, I feel like in you know, three to four years, hopefully, we get back to a swell or at least a balancing of, all right, you make a call, you can find this. It might take you a day or two, but it's not like you're just sitting there waiting for, you know, the broker to call you. Hey, I got you fixed, man. I got you. It's, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, neck scratchingly worthy to sit there. <laughs> it is it's just been tough to be honest with you i hope it i hope it smooths out at some point in time and and this is just my opinion perspective that i've gathered so far is there is a lot of juice out there it's not all in the hands of people that can actually bottle it but more or less in, in investment groups uh so i imagine some of those doors will swing open once they find the return they're looking for and we'll we'll get to find some whiskey again but until then i've got enough to keep us on a really good path for the next next few years certainly so i'm not too worried but uh, if we grow 600%, eh, maybe we, I'd be a little worried. <laughs> Sneak preview, what do you have coming in the future? Yeah, a big part of the push this year is we've solidified what we call kind of our flagship products, which is the, the straight bourbon and the two that we just tried here, the triple cask and the Solera method. As we've solidified that that recipe and, and are pretty happy with it and, and getting good feedback, the big goal of mine is to expand our exploratory cask line which, you know, it could include the 15-year bourbon that we did in the past. If we ever find some more of that, you know, I might have some, might not. That's to be determined. <laughs> I like to hide some stuff in the back that nobody, nobody knows about. But it's a whole host of different, mostly fortified wine casts or other spirit casts. Uh, and I'm also playing with some more types of wood, which is kind of exciting, or different types of oak, for example. I could drop a few in there. I'm working on some you know, Pinot de Charente finishes, some, some Armagnac, some Tawny Ports, some... A really smoky scotch that I, uh, I'm actually kind of excited about. I know some of them sound a little gimmicky, but uh, the goal is to make them good. Otherwise, I'm not going to put them out there. <laughs> <laughs> and all these are in really limited quantities. I'm I usually start with only two to four barrels when I'm when I'm making a new product, um, and then if if we think they're worth it, we'll we'll expand on that from time to time. One thing right now that I kind of wanted to touch on real quick was since we tried the the triple cask bourbon here the Agent Cognac and Oloroso and Pedro Jimenez Sherry. And I've got the, the straight bourbon whiskey, which is above my shoulder in this video, which is the base to that product. I also did a really limited release recently of what I call the mind, body, and spirit, which is actually the individual parts to triple cast. So it was the Cognac finish only, the, the Oloroso finish only, and the Pedro Jimenez finish only too. So you can actually see my thought process and how I blend things. If, if you could find all the bottles 
you could be like, oh, I either get what he was doing or wow, he should have done it this way. I mean, that's up to you. <laughs> but I want to showcase that we we start with good juice. Uh, we don't just cover it with seasonings by any means. And then I want to show you my, my process. So on the, the series and the last thing I had jotted down, I'll be quick. Yeah. Do you feel like that almost keeps imparting flavor even after you take it out of the barrel? And like, I mean, I feel like once you pull it out of the sherry and then put it in the cognac, do you feel like the sherry could almost continue to like swell or overwhelm the profile or what it's done is done? That's actually a really great question. I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I'm not, I'm not too worried about it consuming the product in time after it sits in the bottle um, by any means. But uh, after I've compiled a blend of the barrels that I want to add together, you know, we, we put them together and you go through that marrying process, which is why I started doing the marrying process. So I could make sure that one of them doesn't all of a sudden just consume the other one. I'm like, oh, shit, well, that doesn't taste very good. <laughs> so really, it's like a safety net for me, right? Then once it's approved, it'll go into the bottle. And of course, there is there is still time where all those different flavor profiles, right? Those, those, those uh, uh, compounds are all still bonding together or rearranging themselves. There is a bit of alteration in flavor profile from the time that we blend the barrels to when we bottle them. And then again, from when we bottle them, the wine industry usually calls it like bottle shock. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I believe in that in spirits. I know not everybody does. I, I, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of blenders from a lot of really big companies, um, which is great. And I ask them this one question every single time and they all tell me a different answer. So I don't, I don't know. I couldn't tell you what the hell's going on there. <laughs> um, other than maybe, maybe the yank in my chain. Uh, no, I, I do think that there is a bit of alteration in the bottle itself over time. I don't think it's enough to throw off the overall flavor profile or the, or the direction that we're shooting for. I don't know if that really answers your question, but. No, I just kind of wondered like once a bully, always a bully or when your time's up, like, is it up? And then somebody else has to, you know, take a stance on the stage. Oh, that's. A... Well, if another flavor comes in there and punches the bully in the mouth, right? Isn't that the big thing about a bully? If if something can punch it in the mouth and kind of push it back a little bit, then it's not going to be a bully anymore. Well, that's what I would wonder is like, where do you find the balance of like, here's what I tasted today, but in a month, this guy's going to whoop this guy's ass or vice versa. Or are they going to be neutral or, you know, I mean, it's a can of worms that we're too late to go into, but it's in it's, my head. It's definitely a can of worms. And for example, there's not a single time when I like pulled uh, samples from a barrel and said, I trust the sample right off the bat. I never do. I, I seriously never do. I also don't trust a single barrel to be blatantly honest with you. Why is that? Uh, Cause they're all going to show you something different, right? So going back to our, I think the beginning of our conversation, we're saying, you know, the provenance of the oak, well, every barrel tastes different, right? That's why single barrels work. Like every one of them is different. That's why you have picks. Otherwise you'd be lying to everybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The reality is you're not. You're picking barrels because you think that, you know, this one's exceptional for whatever reason you think it's exceptional, whether it's super odd, maybe it has the right, you know, sweetness to it, you name it. I mean, I find that in every single one of our our barrels, absolutely, which is why when I'm making a blend, I, I pull from every single barrel and I go back and forth and taste them all. And I try and familiarize my palate with that barrel if I can. And granted, sometimes it's too many to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally the case. Once again, we're pretty small. And then I'll compile the blends out of it. And this is all done on this bench here, or will be done on this bench in the future, uh, moving into this room. I go back and taste them. So it might it takes me months to create a new product or new blend because I don't trust it right off the bat. You know, you, you put it together, you say, damn, that's good. And trust me, three days later, it tastes different. It definitely tastes different. So given all that and all that variance there, and it does take you months, when's that point where you finally say, I trust it? When's that point that you say, or, or is it, I finally trust it or it's screw it. 
I'm going with this. If it changes again in the bottle, it changes again in the bottle. Once again, there's a little expectation there that it's going to change a hair here and there. But overall, I think most people don't ever pick up on that. So ultimately, does it have the major components that that I was shooting for? Yes or no. Also, you know, my originally I was going to open this this answer with, well, when my accountant says I need to make make us some money. <laughs> <laughs> That's when it's ready. Bottle that shit. It's ready to go. Yeah, right go. Now. We need some cash, Jesse. To be honest with you, actually, he's one of the biggest proponents of, of weight. If it's not ready, Jesse, seriously, just don't, don't. We won't release it. Don't worry about it. We have that down here. We have a true belief here at the at Doc Swinson's, and we still we still stick to it. I mean, we we believe we will for a long time. Hopefully, as long as we're in control of the brand. It, usually, like I said, more often than not, it's there comes a point in time where I I, I think, okay, here are the major components that I'm looking for um, that my palate is is really searching for when I'm when I'm doing a blend based upon what I know about the individual, you know, individual casts or, or how that, that fortified wine acts or whatnot, all through so far experience doing it. And once I hit those markers, I kind of say, okay, this is, this is where I'm, I'm going to be satisfied. This is where I'm happy. This is what I think is great. Uh, I'll put it in a bottle. Let's release it. Now, I also want to mention that there's a reason why there's a batch number on every bottle. We don't always make it exactly the same every time either. Yes, the flagship products have variances in them themselves because it's a, it's a small number of barrels that all get put together. In the end, you can't find something that exact. Um, it's consistent. Most people don't even pick up on the differences, I've noticed. When it comes to our exploratory casts, there's a reason why we really emphasize these are limited. They actually are limited releases really limited releases, sometimes only, you know, a few hundred bottles, a um, few hundred cases, stuff like that, which is only a couple barrels is because it is so unique. So our release of our, you know, our, our cognac cask or our Madeira cask this time is going to taste different from the next one. And the goal is to search for what, what I find is the best for the inputs that I have. Understood. Yeah. I think we could sit here. I switched. So in all reality, everyone, my iPad was going to die and I switched over just because this was such a good conversation. I think, Jesse, we could talk for another two hours and it would still be interesting. You know, I, I think one of the the wonderful things we do on this podcast is kind of figure out when is that point that we want to cut it? Like when's that point we want to wrap it up? I feel like I got to call it, but I don't want to. Like I don't feel like it's a natural stop. So I will just say that you're welcome here anytime you want to talk about some of the other blends. You're working on stuff in the future. You ever come through Nashville? You got two friends here now. I know y'all are in the Tennessee market, so you got to do a market visit. Let's grab a pour and some food and hang out and, and keep the conversation going. Zeke's laughing because I mentioned food. The fooder. <laughs> oh no no full circle here <laughs> but more importantly oh, more importantly how many states is doc swinson's in right now where can people go find it i know you're on all the instas and the twit whatever and the face chats the things <laughs> that's that's what we say right when when you're a dad now you got to be like the face gram that's totally fair. I mean, I went to college and like studied social media for, for a long time. And honestly, I don't know what the heck's going on. So you guys are more versed in it than I. I'm like, nope, I like barrels. They're old. They stick around. <laughs> Full transparency. And you're going to believe this after this conversation. Zeke does not have the password to our Instagram. He's not very good with the social media, the pictures and making it look pretty. Um, I don't either, Zeke. <laughs> I'm telling you, you two are best friends. <laughs> 
like if there's ever an episode where I'm like, Zeke needs to hang out with that dude. It is this episode right now. Well, I hope it sometime it'll be in Nashville, to be honest. Uh, I got to get down that direction. It's been two years or three years. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I'd love to kick it with y'all. Come on out here. But John's uh, nixing it. I get it. But I'm like, oh, man, I, I was just getting in like the. First- I, I feel the same way. I mean, we're at an hour and a half of audio and I feel like we're just getting into the flow. Like, that's the we thing. We are. We totally are. It's, it's actually. Yeah. You know, the icebreaker has been done. That's. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Well, no worries. I would love to do another podcast with you. Come Seriously. on. Uh, you have an open invitation whenever you want. That would be super cool. I, I'd love to showcase some stuff, especially because, you know, we only got you two samples. I feel like you, you only got little part of what we even do here. I mean, granted, it's the, the biggest part of our, our bottles you know, the ones we make, but I got a lot of cool things I'd love to share with y'all. We can't wait. And and thank you so much for coming on. Find Doc Swinson's everywhere. Find them wherever you can. I'm oh. sure you could find them on online retailers as well. If you want to get them shipped right to your place, if they're not in your state yet, any other thing you want to add to that, Jesse? Yeah, I didn't, I realized I didn't even answer your question. Um, yeah. I guess it's been a long day here too. I mean, you guys are like three hours ahead of me or so, so <laughs> longer for y'all. <laughs> yeah, you can. I, I think we're in like 27 states or so through distribution. And then we just launched our online store too. So docswhiskey.com. You can, if you're in one of the states they'll ship to, I believe there's 39 of them. You can actually buy all of our products, including some of our limited, really limited release products too online. And it also has a bottle locator. So if you type in your zip code under, I think it's find docs, there's like the tab on there. It'll punch up a bunch of retailers hopefully near you that will have it it is i just went to the website they got everything you need there it, it pretty much docswhiskey.com you could join the cool kids club you can which i really enjoy and you want to hear about their latest releases join the cool kids club and then the first bottle that pops up is this rum finished rye but go ahead, check them out. It's docswhiskey.com. Jesse, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, Zeke. It's been a pleasure having having you to uh, uh, not grill me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Great questions. Uh, I'm also bummed that uh, we're just now getting into the flow, and I'm sure we could pick up on this again sooner next time. We will. And until then, everyone can go ahead and find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dad's, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Please leave us an open and honest review, just like we leave open and honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Googling pics of a fooder barrel. Cheers. Ciao.